Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And this is our fourth and final episode summarizing the saga of Halvarth of Isafjord. How you been? Well, are, are you asking me, or are you just being polite to the listener? I, I was asking you. Now I've lost interest. Well, I mean, I, I'm fine. Uh, as you know, I'm in a bit of a scramble right now. We're... We're recording this the night before I have to travel to a, lo- a week-long conference uh, on interdisciplinary studies. Uh, as many of our listeners know, I have become the... Uh, I'm no longer with the English department at the University of Mississippi. I am the director of inter- and multidisciplinary studies. So uh, getting into that field and going to the conference... Comes with a much fancier hat. It's a little fancier and the money's a little better, I gotta there say. There you go. Uh, even though it's a... Yeah, we'll, we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but you, uh, on the other hand, you're in the middle of uh, of uh, a pretty chaotic semester. Yeah, so many different kinds of chaos. Yeah, what did you I, do I, to yourself? I honestly think I survive each semester by convincing myself that it's usually not this much work. Uh, but it's, it's usually pretty not. much always this much work. No, no, because <laughs> you you went to Iceland on your sabbatical and did all these yep. fancy things, and now you're paying the price. Oh, absolutely, I am. You've taken yep. on way too much. Yep. So it is. Uh, oh, and I'm also I'm also trying to build a treehouse in my backyard and get it finished for my kids before winter comes. Uh, well, that's so lovely. In it lies, but honestly, at this point, a chance to sit down and talk about a saga for an hour. This is this is basically my night off. Well, good, good. Well, we uh, we left off on something of a cliffhanger again uh, six months ago, whenever that was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it you know, theoretically, it's a good idea to end on a cliffhanger, assuming mm-hmm. that you know you're coming back soon. Right. But, uh, you know. There's only a few weeks. Yeah. I mean, what's a few weeks to remember a, a meaningful cliffhanger, you know? <laughs> this saga lends itself to them. It, it really does. I mean, here's one of the things that I've noticed about this saga, and I'm already prepping for our next saga, mm-hmm. is that these, these post-classical sagas do a good job. They're, they're like actually paying attention to the structuring of, right. of right. the saga. It's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's actually, they get a bit self-conscious about it at times. It's interesting to watch. Yeah, that's right. Um, but it has been a bit since the last episode. Uh, we do also ah, make a habit right. of that. Yeah, but, um, you know. but there's, it's nothing a little recap can't fix. Oh, it's excellent. Time to, uh, hop in the DeNorian and find out what happened. Last time on Saga Thing. Halvath of Isafjord is fresh off his bloody revenge on his son's killer, Thorbjorn Fredrickson. Instead of retiring with a good book, the elderly Halvath and his band of Kendu nephews choose to paint the town red in the blood of Thorbjorn's brothers. Before they're done with their revels, two more Thorbjordsons are dead, and the countryside's in a tizzy. Halvath and company make their way to the home of Stainthor of Eri, a chieftain with a penchant for taking up honorable causes. While Halvath cools his heels at Eri, Things are heating up down the road in Rathersand, where a fourth Jodrickson, Jot the Dula, has been throwing his weight around. After he bullies his neighbor Thorbjorn the farmer once too often, Thorbjorn's two twin boys, Thorstein and Grimm, take matters and axes in hand and chop down Jot like a cherry tree. But when they tell their father that they cannot tell a lie, he puts a ring in their hands and a boot in their behinds and sends them to hide out at Stainthor's as well. 
Playing host to every Theodrickson killer in the Westfjords is giving Stainthor's wallet a workout. <laughs> so he visits his sister Thordis for a loan of enough food and booze to keep the party going all winter. Thordis's husband Outley, a notorious skinflint, hides in a haystack rather than untie his purse strings. But the move backfires when his open-handed wife gives her brother an entire storehouse of party supplies. Stainthor then hides behind a curtain to learn his in-law's reaction, only to awkwardly interrupt a bedroom liaison between the reconciled couple. And as winter gives way to summer, Stainthor makes plans to defend Harworth and his friends in court. But he fears dirty work at the crossroads from Thorar and Gothi, the oldest, last, and most cunning of the Theodricsons. And so he asks Otley to keep Halworth's crew safe while he heads off to the Althing. And Otley promises to do his best. But what's this? Thorarin's already got his game pieces in motion. And the game's afoot as Thorarin and Stainthor race to court and their friends hurtle toward a bloody conflict. Who will live? Who will die? And who will pay the price? Find out as we discuss Halworth's Saga, chapters 19 to 24. Only six chapters this time, but we've uh, we've still got a lot of things to resolve in this saga. So we left off uh, with Halworth and his friends staying at the farm of Outley the Short. And I I remember this moment because mm-hmm. I thought to myself, not having read the rest of the saga, surely Outley is going to betray them. This is a great cliffhanger. <laughs> um, and and they're, they're there at Outley's awaiting their fate, whatever that might be. Uh, mm-hmm. While Cousin Stainthor, the Gothi, tries to build that legal defense for the series of killings that Halworth has orchestrated against the Theodrickson. So there's a lot yeah. going on. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, and we covered all that in the episode review. What we're seeing here in this saga is the usual revenge theme. Right? It, it sure. plays out in some way in the vast majority of the family sagas. But in this saga, it's so overtly hitting the tropes that it's it's like somewhere in between derivative and meta. Mm-hmm. And uh, you and I have been leaning a little bit toward meta, I think. I mean, this is yes, a saga definitely. that understands and plays with the tropes of the genre, or at least uses them in ways that seem self-aware, sometimes. Yeah, and sometimes is the key. Uh, I'm going to withhold judgment until we get to the end of the story, um, which is really close by. Mm-hmm. So, you ready? Let's. You want to dive in and finish this? Get your book out and let's go. Part 13, Dueling Dreamers. Sounds like a, a 50s, uh, a 1950s pop hit. There ought to be a little doo-wop going on behind there. Uh, so uh, we left off with several groups of men on the move, and I say we just uh, pick up there. Yeah, it's actually a fair number of moving parts, uh, so let's take a moment and locate them all. Again. Okay. Uh, let's imagine a bird's-eye view of northwestern Iceland. Got it? Yeah, I got it. Yeah, I don't know what to do with it, but I got it. I know where we're at. <laughs> uh, well, there's the Westfjords. Uh, for those of you who know the map of Iceland, the Westfjords are the piece that sticks off from the northwest corner of the island. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to and the, the roads, south of that... The place where the roads aren't so good. Right, right. <laughs> um, to the south of that is Breidafjord. Uh Now, as we zoom in on the map, we see lava fields, ice flows out in the water, whales breaching offshore. This is all very idyllic. Mm-hmm. I like what you're doing here, but but what about the saga, John? Well, as we continue to focus in, we see several bands of men in different spots on the map. Ooh. One group, a vast troop of warriors, is riding away from Otradal on the south coast toward the Althing. They're led by the chieftain, 
stay in Thorf Eri. A much smaller group of nine stays behind. They're led by the retired Viking, Halvorth of Isafjord. And those men are standing on the edge of a farm owned by Stainthor's sister Thordis and her husband Outley. Mm-hmm. So far, so good. I can see good. this. Now, further to the north, another huge group of men is riding to the Althing from Durfjord. As we're watching, yet another smaller group of men heads off from Durfjord as well, but this group is riding toward Otradal. Well, now. And so as the picture becomes clearer, you can see... The sun is glinting off the many, many weapons that that smaller group of men has with them. They're clearly riding out for blood. So, where should we start? Well, I like this. I like this approach that you've got here. Um, why don't we? Why don't we start with the largest group? Uh, this group is led okay. by Stein Thoraveri, as you said. Uh, he's the friendly neighborhood chieftain who is on his way to the Althing. Uh, he is traveling with, as the saga tells us, a company of three hundred followers, which I mean, that's a lot of dudes. Yeah, no, by the standards of this time, 300 men is a small army. Yeah, but uh, but he knows that he may need every last one of them in this mm-hmm. upcoming conflict. Uh, he's going to try to negotiate some peaceful resolution for the killings done by Havarth of Isafjord and his friends, uh, who've all come to stay with Stainthor for help. Uh, this is this is actually a pretty dangerous undertaking, since Havarth's crew has killed multiple chieftains and four brothers from the same family, and it's not mm-hmm. a, a, a family that uh, lacks power, let's say. Right, right. And Stainthor knows he's going to have to bargain with Thorarin Thjodriksson. The He's an older man. He's the last remaining brother uh, of the four Thjodriksons that Halvorth and his men have slaughtered. Now, to be fair, the Thjodriksons started it when they killed Halvorth's son Olaf, the, uh, the Draugr sure. wrestler. Right, yeah. But that's not really how Thorarin is likely to see it. Uh, <laughs> Thorarin has a reputation he's a he's a he's a clever and a wiser man than his brothers but he's every bit as sneaky and unjust as the worst of them mm-hmm. and unsurprisingly he's not really all interested in whose fault any of this is well why this would is he? about revenge and honor not an abstract justice exactly yeah so as he rides with his men Stathor's mind is on the case and the support he can expect from various quarters yeah and as you said he's got 300 men with him or to put it in scientific terms, exactly 1.0 Thermopylae of men. Mm. But he doesn't have Halvorth or his men along for the trip because they've been stashed at the farm of Outley of Otradal. If they're hiding out there, well, Stainthor tries to negotiate for their lives. Well, I mean, hiding out is strong language, but uh, that's that's what they're ostensibly doing in Otley's yeah, house. Well, it's what they're doing. I mean, Stainthor knows exactly how big this whole mess has gotten. And he doesn't need to try to protect nine wanted men from assassins while he tries to build up support for their case. Which is good planning on his part. But the problem yeah. is that anyone who's worth a damn is on the ride to the all thing with Stainthor. <laughs> so he's been forced to leave Howarth's crew, who, to be fair, can take care of themselves, sure. in the care of his brother-in-law, Otley. Now, Otley is many things... But he hasn't impressed anyone as a warrior or even as a as a person right. <laughs> if, we, if we take the saga's introduction of him. Uh-huh. So the plan seems to be to hope that no one figures out where Halvorth and his men are. Maybe, yeah. I mean, you, you definitely wouldn't assume anyone would leave vulnerable men under the protection of a guy like Atli. This is slander at this point. This is it's just directly from the saga. I know. <laughs> the saga's in the aging slander. Uh, now... To just quickly review this group of men that Halvorth has with him. Uh, there's Halvorth himself, obviously, an elderly retired Viking out for revenge for the death of his son. 
then we have uh, two young tweens, uh, Thorsten and Grim Thurbjarnason, who are the killers of Jotunduler. Mm-hmm. And then there's an assortment of Halvorth's nephews, uh, Torvi and Eolf Valbranson, Auden Thor Thorbranson, uh, Hotgrim Asbranson, and then Thorhat, the man who works for Halvard. So that's nine altogether. And so those are our quote-unquote good guys. Yes, but I really don't think we need the quote-unquote. Uh, this saga clearly thinks in terms of white hats and black hats. Hmm. And I don't think we're meant to be in any doubt about who is who. Yeah, I, I generally agree with that. But things do get a little bit complicated when we're talking about the last surviving brother of five. Now, the saga may not acknowledge it, but Thorarin's got a pretty good motive for wanting a little revenge here. But he's associated True. with the wrong people. Sure. Uh, but I'm not sure that mitigates his actions. He doesn't engage in a revenge killing by saddling up and leading men to revenge. Right? He gets far away from the action and is sending a sorcerer, as we'll see, to do his dirty work for him. Mm-hmm. His goals may be understandable, but his methods are suspect. Well, yeah, because he's the bad guy. I hate you a little. <laughs> I know. And I love it. Uh, now, speaking of Thorarin, the group riding from Durafjord, it's the other large group. That one's led mm-hmm. by Thorarin Theodrickson himself. Um, he's riding along with his good friend, Duri the Gothi. Right. It's another chieftain. Everyone in this saga is a chieftain. Aren't they, though? Yeah. <laughs> well, these are big doings, and all the top brass need to be getting involved. Mm-hmm. So Thorarin and Duri have a little over 200 men. Or by your nonsense metric, I believe that is something like a 68% of a Thermopylae. Is that correct? That's, that's still a lot of men. It's a lot. So uh, this is not the whole story, though, uh, because as they ride south, a second group of 18 men also rides out from Durafjord, as you described in your cinematic picture. Uh, mm-hmm. But this group is heading toward Ultradal, where Halvarth and company are hidden away. So what's up with these guys, John? Right, well, this is that group of men with the weapons that I mentioned. Oh, yes, all glinting in the sunlight. And and mm-hmm. leading them is the son of Duri Gothi, a man named Thorgrim. Right, Thorgrim the Magician. Yeah, and Thorgrim is a large and well-built man. And, and yes, he's a well-known expert in black magic. And he's been sent as part of a plan that has all the hallmarks of being, dare I say, mildly cunning. Usually when we say that, we mean it ironically or sarcastically, but this I think this is actually the literal definition of cunning. I mean, the the plan hinges on the fact that Stainthor has stashed Halvart's gang at the farm of his undersized and underwhelming and very likely to turn on these men, uh, brother-in-law Otley, right? I don't be so quick to dismiss Otley. He's got hidden depths. Does he? Admittedly, they're very, very well hidden, but still. Well, they're they're well hidden enough that Thorarin thinks Halvarth is more or less undefended. Mm-hmm. So Thorarin and Duri are going to go to the Althing, and their plan is to press for a generous settlement over the deaths of Thorarin's brothers. But while they're running the lawsuit, Thorgrim Durason and his crew are going to descend on Otley's farm and wipe out Halvarth and company. And if they can time all of this right, Thorarin hopes to get financial and blood compensation for his brothers. It's pretty clever. It is. Uh, It's a big if getting both at once, but Thorarin's not overburdened with moral fiber, so he's willing to kill a dozen or so men on the chance of a double compensation. Well, I mean, we could also think of it as a sort of insurance policy. So no Mm. matter how the court case goes, right, Thorarin can relax, knowing that his vengeance is already complete. Sure. 
I mean, it, of course, that does make one rather large assumption, which is that Thorgrim and his 18-man wrecking crew can kill an old man and his team of nephews and random tweens. Well, I mean, here's how it plays out. Thorgrim's hit squad makes it all the way up to Otley's property in the morning without anyone noticing. Mm-hmm. But before they can start the attack, Thorarin announces that he's too sleepy to do anything but lie down for a nap. Something we've seen many times in the sagas. Mm-hmm. And so the entire company hunkers down in a ravine so that they can stay hidden while Thorarin settles his brain for a long winter's nap. Right. It's it's actually summer, but I get your point. Mm-hmm. And as you say, this is such a trope in the sagas, isn't it? Uh, when people's fates are about to be decided, usually in combat, there's a chance of this. I guess you'd call it spiritual interference. Uh, a figure sure. on one or both sides of the coming conflict will suddenly be overtaken by sleep. And the more magical the individual is, the more likely he or she is to suddenly turn narcoleptic. Yeah, and this is one of the both sides situations. Mm-hmm. Because Atli, the host and farm owner, is also having a dangerous dream right about this time. Right, and there's a detail here. Uh, we were told earlier in the saga that Atli is such a miser that he sleeps in his main storehouse to make sure no one steals from him in the night. Fortunately, it's empty now. <laughs> Well, only one of them, right? He's got more than one. Uh, Now that he's hosting Halworth and his crew, which in an average person would be a reason to maybe delegate the job of guarding the storehouse to an employee, maybe act more like the lord of the manor with your guests, you know, that would be the sort of the normal approach. Uh, I suppose so. Uh, But I guess that only makes sense if you assume that it isn't his employees who are supposedly planning to rob the storehouse, right? Yeah, it's true, but it's not especially relevant because Outley's not leaving the storehouse anyway. Instead, he now has all of his new guests come and sleep in the storehouse with him. So, yeah. Hmm. So, John, the the way that I read this is the storehouse Mm -hmm. is empty. He doesn't have the space for all these guys in his farmhouse. So mm-hmm. he's putting them in the storehouse as the most convenient. There's nothing in the storehouse. That's why it's well, spacious and so much room. Right, I mean, that's an interesting question, right? Whether he's still guarding or whether he's now just using it as a kind of bunker. I mean, uh, the, the text says mm-hmm. something like, Otley had the storehouse cleared, uh, he put their beds in there, he hung their weapons up, and he treated them in fine style. So I I, well, I think, but we do, here's the weird thing. I think yeah. Otley... This is what surprised me. He's kind mm. of doing his job. I guess. I guess. Uh, but we know he has a bed back in the main farmhouse, right? Because his yes. wife took him to bed in the last episode when her brother was listening from behind the wall hanging. Oh, that's so very, very awkward. But yes, he, he does. He must also have a cot or something in the storehouse if he sleeps in there every night. Again, the text says that they have beds and they're just sleeping there now because they're on their guard. Right. So. And but presumably they're all stuffed in there, depending on how big the storehouse is. Right. So there's a and also there's a farmhand who stays out there as well. Right. So we're talking about eleven guys in total, all sharing the floor space in a storehouse. Yeah, it might be a little crowded depending on the size of the yeah, storehouse. A little bit, yeah. This is a certain locker room quality to the air in there after a while, uh, I would imagine. Yeah, especially in the early summer. Ripe cheese, mm-hmm. old silage, and uh, dirty socks. Ah, uh, it's the. New masculine fragrance from Paco Rabanne. <laughs> but uh, this morning, uh, I think it's uh, Paco Rabanson. Um, Rabanson. If I'm not mistaken. <laughs> uh, but but this morning, there's something in the air besides Hotgrim Asprinson's unwashed laundry. 
<laughs> See, Otley is tossing and turning and making such a racket that no one else can get any rest. So finally, Torvi Valrinson shakes him awake, and Halvarth asks if he's been dreaming of anything important. And Otley says, I dreamt that I walked out of here and I saw 18 wolves running together from the south. And ahead of the wolves, a vixen was running. It was a cunning-looking animal, awful and evil. It looked around and took everything in, and all the animals seemed to be very fierce. I know that they were the spirits of men that I saw, but just as they reached the farmhouse, Torvi woke me. So I think we should get up immediately and prepare ourselves. Okay, so he's had a warning of danger, but he's had no indication of how the coming fight is likely to go. Exactly. He was woken up before the, mm-hmm. the whole scene could play out. But the warning mm-hmm. is enough that Otley is worried. And he says, It seems most likely now that this will be as many men have said, that it was no benefit to my brother-in-law, Stainthor, to have brought you here. <laughs> Even Outley is slandering Outley at this point. Uh, <laughs> but we'll have to see how it turns out. Uh, so Outley has seen enough that he gets everyone not only dressed but out the door and into the yard as soon as possible. All right, but uh, we had we, we started with another guy out in a ditch falling right. asleep, too. What's going on there? Right. It's it's a ravine, by the way. Thank uh, you, not a ditch. Uh-huh. Uh, and what's happening is that Thorgrim wakes up at the same moment as Outley. When his men ask him what he dreamed about, he says, I've just been up to the farmhouse, and everything was such a muddle that I do not see matters clearly. Nevertheless, we shall go up to the farmhouse. I think we should burn them inside the building. It seems to me the quickest way of resolving the matter. Wow, so this is one of those times when both sides get a glimpse of what's coming. Yeah, we've said before this saga knows what it's doing. Uh, Using this motif at this point in the narrative and doubling it, I think, underlines the importance of the coming battle. Right, It's the the final physical battle of the saga. Yeah, and it does a a nice job of building that tension up for us Mm -hmm. as readers or as the audience. Um, It's doing a lot at once. It's also establishing Thorgrim and Otley as opposites, giving mm-hmm. each of them an antagonist for the battle. And it's putting a thumb on the scales to let us know where fate is more likely to smile on this day. Otley's huh. vision is clearer, and it gives a definite warning, but Thorgrim's, it's more clouded and uncertain. That's true, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they're they're planning to burn the good guys in a storehouse that smells like old socks. Mm-hmm. It's possible the Norns do not approve. <laughs> Maybe. Part 14. The Chatter of Spears. And we start to see the advantage of Otley's superior vision pay off right away. Mm-hmm. Thorgrim and his men rise up. Thorgrim and his men rise up out of the ravine, planning to trap their quarry inside. And burn the place, just like they planned. But instead, they find Otley, Halvarth, and the rest all waiting for them in front of the building. Right. Uh, And Thorgrim says, Well, who knew but that Otley the coward is more cunning than we thought? It looks to me as if we must attack them at once. And the men at the storehouse ready themselves as Thorgrim's crew of 18 spreads out and starts running toward them. And if you remember the last episode, John, Halvarth gave his men a chalkboard talk before a farm assault to make sure each of them knew their assignment. That's right. Very important. It was, it was inspiring stuff, as I recall. And I would expect mm-hmm. him to do the same here. Well, yeah, he's got his chalk out. He's got a plan and he's about to give his assignments. But Otley, Otley, the coward, the, 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 the guy who was told be better 
best or whatever. Right. Right. <laughs> he beats Be better him than to your it. personality. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's taken Stainthor's advice to heart, mm-hmm. and suddenly he's got courage, and he's got a plan. Mm-hmm. He says, all right. It looks to me as though we're dealing with men from Durafjord. Their leader is certainly Thorgrim Durason, the worst man of that area. He's the one leading them. He's a magician of great skill, and he and his father are the closest friends with Thrar and Theodrickson. He's going to be elsewhere taking up the suit over his brother's deaths. That's my guess. Now, it may be unexpected, but I intend to go after him myself. Now, Halvarth, I... He's, he's not wrong. That is, that is definitely unexpected. <laughs> Very much so. He's trying to live up to the confidence that's been shown in him. And he's Fair enough. Fair enough. We'll see how it goes. Carry on. Now, Halvarth, you're the most experienced fighter, so I want you to take two of the... <clears throat> His voice makes me cough. <laughs> so I want you to take two of the best fighters for yourself. I've reserved two of the toughest-looking warriors for Hotgrim, your kinsman. For you, Torvi and Eolf, the sons of Valbrand, I allot four men and four also for you, Odd and Thorir Thorbrandsen. I-, I think that the young sons of Thorbjorn, Grim and Thorstein, they can handle three men between them, and I give one man each to Thorhattle and my farmhand. Are you ready, boys? <laughs> do you, uh, do you, want, you want a few minutes to go gargle some salt water after that? <laughs> <laughs> on three. One, two, three. You made, made that a little rough on yourself, didn't you? <laughs> There was a lot of that was a lot of text. Uh, I was keeping track of that while you were reading it, and it adds up correctly. Uh, that mm-hmm. is eighteen men. Uh, Outly yeah. manages to get everyone squared away and ready uh, before Thorgrim and his men can cover the distance to the yard. Now it turns out that Otley's got some hidden depths. You right? keep saying that, but uh, you know I think we're starting to uncover them. Uh, so uh, the saga, as we said, it was already established that Halvarth's ability to coordinate an attack was a sign of his returning vigor and skill as an experienced Viking. Yeah. Outley doesn't have any sort of history to return to. Uh, he's inexperienced, he's undersized, and as Thorgrim just said, he's got a reputation for being a bit cowardly, or at least for being a guy who'd rather avoid a fight. Suddenly he's, uh, he's Blanton Collier. Or, or he's someone people have heard of. Well, I'm sticking with Collier because it works. Good for you. (laughs) Uh, The point I was going to make is that this is one of those heightened reality moments the saga loves. This parallel between Halvarth and Outley isn't an accident. It's this sudden exhibition of decisive leadership. It's it's evidence that Outley is reaching the full height of his potential, rising to the occasion. Just like Blanton Collier in the 1964 championship game. You are just... You are determined to ruin Otley's moment. They won 27 to nothing over Johnny Unitas and the Colts. <laughs> you don't argue with that kind of success, John. Come on. Uh, all right. Uh, well, while you were proving how long it's been since the Browns won a championship, uh, <laughs> Thorgrim's men have burst into the yard. If we uh, could just get a quarterback. <laughs> they crash into the defenders, and all 29 men begin fighting for their lives. Uh, after the first wave of attack, things break out more or less as Outley had planned, with smaller battles taking place all over the yard. All right, so the narrative stays with Otley as he attacks Thorgrim, which is great, although I might have delayed that one to the end of the fight. Mm-hmm. But what? either way, the two of them have an old enmity, apparently. It's something that we haven't been told <laughs> first, about. Yeah, right, first we've learned of it. <laughs> yeah, and, and they ignore the fighting all around them while they rush at each other. Uh, very cinematic, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the first exchange, little Otley manages to duck inside Thorgrim's swing and lands a two-handed blow with his sword. But 
it bounces off Thorgrim the sorcerer without hurting him. Mm-hmm. And to be clear, uh, Andy's not making fun of Outley there. The saga actually calls him Little Outley at this moment. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the important thing there, though, is that Thorgrim appears to be swordproof. Well, we did say he was a magician. Mm-hmm. He's clearly cast the I'm rubber your glue spell. Yeah, well, they slash at each other a few more times, but neither of them is hurt. And Otley mm-hmm. says, you're just like a troll, Thorgrim. Not like a man at all. Because no iron bites on you. Really? Because no iron bites on you. Really? How dare you speak of such a thing? I struck at you as often as I could just now, and nothing bit into your miserable bald head. Now, this saga really likes to take shots at Otley's appearance. It, yeah. Poor guy. It also calls him beady-eyed and squat during this battle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to dig into that a bit, actually, but let's get through the fight first. Uh, so, I'm not sure I believe that both of these guys are using magic. Yeah, me neither. Uh, it, it feels, I was going to call it deflection, but that seems overly literal. It's a smokescreen. Uh, Thorgrim knows he's using magic, but he also knows most people don't approve of that sort of thing in battle. So he just turns the accusation around. Uh, I read it as one of those little bits of insight that lets us glimpse a character's personality. Uh, what do you think, Eddie? Is that Lee a magician? Uh, assuredly not. No, mm-hmm. he's he's not. I think what we have here is very, very kind of what you're saying, but it highlights, I think, maybe that Otley's actually a decent fighter now that he's got a sword in his hand. I think I think you may be right. Where there, there's something going on here, uh, but let's 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 try to finish this up, and we'll we'll maybe yeah. get into that in a minute. I I have some thoughts here uh, as yeah. well. Um, I'm wondering if you're thinking the same thing, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, Thorgrim's definitely using magic. I think we can be sure mm-hmm. of that. And Otley realizes that his sword, well, it's simply not going to do him much good in this fight. So, John, tell me if you've heard this one before. Mm-hmm. Uh, he drops his weapon slips under Thorgrim's next swing and throws him to the ground. But now he's Throw unarmed. Throw him to the ground, so... right roughly. <laughs> but now he's unarmed, so he just drops down on Thorgrim and bites into his neck and crushes his windpipe. Ooh. Uh, Thorgrim dies, uh, understandably, and probably very surprised by this <laughs> event. Um, and then Otley drags the corpse over to where he dropped his sword and cuts Thorgrim's head off. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, that came out of nowhere. I, I well, it's not completely out of nowhere. We've seen that before. Mm-hmm. If an opponent in a fight is spell-proofed against weapons, teeth are an acceptable workaround. First of all, mm-hmm. so remember Ale doing this same thing, of course. Um, and Christina von Nolken calls this a fulfillment of the tough guy promise of people like Ale, and uh, I guess Otley too. <laughs> what is the tough guy promise of Otley exactly? Uh, No, I I do remember that episode, and that's what's so interesting to me about this. The biting opponent's throat episode appears in several places in the sagas, and they're not just a way to deal with magically hardened skin. They're a sign of a berserk fury. Andy, is Outley a berserk? Mm, That's not what I was thinking, but you go ahead and explain. Why do you think so? The qualities of a berserk are what? If we want to make a checklist, it probably includes a brutal or animalistic fighting style, access to superhuman strength, a degree of social awkwardness, an unusual physical appearance, and the ability to shrug off injuries. Okay, we could argue some finer points of that, but sure, if you want. Uh, So Outley has just crushed a man's windpipe with his teeth, 
which we know from other sagas is a berserk fury move, especially in one-on-one fights. I think it's a more of a practical move, but okay, if you want. Okay. Uh, so to do that, he threw a much bigger man than him who was armed with a sword onto the ground. That part I agree with. It is a little surprising. So, But I think it fits my reading a little bit better than he's well, a berserk. Uh, the the narrative at this moment is going out of its way to remind us that Outley is short, ugly, bald, and beady-eyed. And as we saw last time, he has a problem getting along with other people, and he has problems keeping workers because of his (laughs) difficult personality. Okay, yeah, that's all true. Uh, And, good, because my last point is probably the weakest. Uh, Thorgrim's accusation that he's been hitting Outley with his sword and not hurting him. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not absolutely necessary for my point, but just from a narrative point of view, I like that idea better because then instead of Thorgrim just gaslighting any onlookers about Outley using magic, he's also sincerely getting frustrated. It turns their battle into the grown-up equivalent of two kids with sticks yelling, "No, you're dead! I already hit you!" And uh-huh. I'm kind of pleased with that idea. <laughs> okay, so in your mind, Otley turns out to be a sort of sawn-off berserk. Yeah. Uh, by the way, interesting si- uh, sidebar about that duel of ales you mentioned. Uh, his opponent, the guy whose throat he chomped through, that guy's name was Outley the Short. <laughs> yes, yes. I was about to mention that. Yeah, no relation, I assume. No, no. Yeah, certain names do end up associated with certain characteristics in the sagas, but uh, there's no connection between these two. Uh, and the throat, the throat biting, well... I was about to call that a coincidence, but we keep saying the saga's composer knows the sagas really well and is playing with them. So I think that the saga author is aware of this convention mm-hmm. and is drawing on it here. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think it sounds right, or at least plausible. Uh, you had a different theory, though. I yeah, I do. I think I think what we have here is you you were drawing a, a, a parallel between Halvarth and and Otley earlier. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what we have going on here. Just as Halvarth is spurred into kind of a, a, a youthful manliness uh, from his old age, mm-hmm. um, Otley is spurred into just manliness uh, by <laughs> by this conflict and by the chiding of mm-hmm. his of his brother in law. Um, so I don't know that he needs to be a berserk necessarily. I think once he gets on the side of right and good. In this particular saga, he is empowered with uh, this uh, superhuman planning and strength mm-hmm. and 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 warrior abilities. Right. I don't think it has to mean that he's a berserk. I think the way that he's turning into a warrior has berserk qualities. Yeah, I think there, there's a fair possibility there. I think it's interesting. I'll say that. Uh, hey, Andy, wasn't there a battle of some sort going on? Well, yeah. See, it's raging all around Otley. So uh-huh. we zoom out a little bit uh, after he finishes chopping off Thorgrim's head to make sure he doesn't come back to life or whatever he's doing. Uh, he looks with his beady eyes to see where he's needed. Again, it, keeps, it sounds like we're taking shots at Otley, but the saga really is saying he looked around with his beady eyes. That's right. Uh, and what do and his I think- beady elf eyes see, Andy? And I, I just want to draw attention to that. I think yeah. the saga is is repeatedly drawing our attention to the fact that he's bald and beady eyed, mm-hmm. and he's he's less than in the same way that Halvarth was less than as an old right. man. He's weak right. and and decrepit and 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 whatever. Um, but somehow, when you when you are driven by right, you can mm-hmm. do magical things. 
right? You're seeing we're, we're seeing uh, willpower and yes, and and righteousness making yep. up for natural ability or youth. That's right. Yep. Um, and what does he see with those beady eyes? You ask. He sees yeah. that Hotgrim has killed both of his opponents, mm-hmm. and Old and Thorir Thorbrinson have killed three of the four men that they were assigned. Halvorth has killed one man, but is struggling with the second, and so Otley rushes over to help. Now he catches that man off guard, and with Halvorth's help, they are able to kill him within a few moments. Uh, yeah, and the rest are still fighting as well. Uh, Torvi Valbrinson has killed his two men. And his brother Eolf has killed one man and is still fighting a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thorhut was only given one man and he's already killed him. Uh, the boys, uh, Grimm and Thorsten, have killed two of the three men they matched up with. And they've of cornered they the did. third. Yeah, of yeah. course. These guys are great. Uh, and Outley's farmhand is still locked in combat with the man he was assigned. So in other words, Thorgrim's crew just ran into a meat grinder. Yeah. Uh, Fourteen men killed without a single death on Halvorth and Outley's side. Yeah. Uh, several of the defenders are wounded, though, and Halvorth now finally tells everyone to stand down and stop killing people. Yeah, it actually ends up at 15 dead. Mm-hmm. Now, everyone else lowers their weapons, <laughs> but Thorstein Thorbjarnason, the 12-year-old, says, My father out in Rathasend, west of here, will not hear that we brothers did not do our part as well as others have. Mm-hmm. And then he drives his axe into his last opponent's head, <laughs> dropping him on the spot. <laughs> Your dad's going to hear is you just killed a guy who lowered his weapon. (laughs) These impulsive kids these days. Uh, Obviously, the last three men are really eager to stop fighting at this point. Especially Uh, with Thorstein and Grimm approaching. Absolutely, with their tiny axes. Yeah. Uh, But Outley isn't so sure about all this, and he asks whether it wouldn't just be a good idea to kill all of them. Mm. Uh, And Halvorth says, no, they should be allowed to live. Well, that's fine, but Otley's not in a mood to give these guys some orange slices and pat them on the back and pat them on the back for a good day's brawl. He has <laughs> the three survivors bound and brought before him, and then he shaves their heads, paints their bodies with tar, and oh. finally takes out his long knife and cuts their ears off. Okay. Now he says, "Go with these markings to go and find Thorarin of Enduri." And tell them of what happened here today. And this will help you to remember that you have met Otley the Short. Holy moly, where did that come from? I know. Uh, maybe, a, maybe it is a berserker rage. I don't know. But it turns <laughs> out that Otley has some anger management issues that he might want to work on. Wow. So uh, chopping off these guys' ears is technically a kind of torture. I mean, yeah, well, yeah. Obviously, it's a maiming, mutilation, maiming. Yeah, mutilation, but yeah. inflicting that mutilation on a helpless person in what is now a non-combat situation, this is an unusual level of viciousness. Um, it's been a while since we had this kind of blood splattering horror moment. Is this going up before Halloween, Andy? Can we can we claim a tie-in? Uh, we can do whatever we want. I don't know that it's that kind of that kind of horror, but uh, I mean, it's the best know. we got. <laughs> uh, actually, no, I'm going to the conference. I'm not going to be able to edit this until I get back. So oh, it'll be right, up after right, Halloween. Right. Well, we were thinking of Halloween at the time, y'all. When when we had the author write this part. Right, right. A not thousand years ago. We were thinking of it. Uh, <laughs> no, this this moment tends to stop readers in their tracks for obvious reasons. Yeah. Uh, scenes of torture and maiming are pretty rare in the sagas. 
Well, there, there is the scene in Ravenkettle Saga when uh, Salman the Theosterson's mm-hmm. hang Ravenkettle and his men by their Achilles. Achilles. <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> by their Achilles tendons from a rope. Mm. Uh, that's one that does give me nightmares. It's a pretty horrific idea. Yeah. Uh, there's also Gunlaug Saga. Uh, do you remember when Gunlaug gouges out the eye of a man on Olaf Tryggvason's order? Oh, yeah, yeah. And then stops at a different farm and gouges an eye out of a different guy. Because he just doesn't like him very much. I, I think it was actually Halfred Troublesome Poet Saga. Um, but that that first one, he was he was going to punish someone on the king's behalf because right. the guy didn't convert to Christianity or wouldn't convert to Christianity. So he was supposed to kill him or blind him, right, or something like that. Uh, but yeah, the second one was uh, it was personal. It was a personal issue. Yeah, but I do think it's interesting because this idea of maiming someone it, it does seem to be a punishment, especially where a royal or centralized authority. Uh, is in play, but it does yeah. it does suggest to me that these kind of punishments were probably going on in the real world. You know, it's not too right. unusual. Uh, my favorite thing about that is that he does this because he's been sent to gouge both eyes out of the first guy, decides to leave him with one, and then needs to make up the difference. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I forgot about and that. And then when, yeah, he, when like, he brings it back to Olaf, Olaf looks at them and realizes they're not eyes from yeah. the same person. <laughs> The different right. colors or yeah, something. Yeah, Olaf's uh, rather disappointed. He says, are you going to go back and finish the job? And yeah. uh, Halfer says something like, uh, I uh, I won't finish the job with the first guy, but I'm more than willing to go back and pluck another eye out of the, the second guy. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, and there are one or two other places in the sagas where torture is mentioned but not actually depicted. Like yeah. uh, at the end of Greenlander saga, there's a brief reference to uh, Leif Erikson torturing the the servants of his sister to find out what she did in the new world when she was murdering mm-hmm. a ship's crew of men. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's 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 and, very unusual to find these moments. Yeah, that, well, there's one going to be coming up in the next saga that we're mm-hmm. doing yep. as well. Yep. So, you know, if you want your torture, now now's the time if to get in. If, if this is your thing, if you're if you like the Saw films. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, tarring, shaving, and mutilating your enemies is pretty extreme. Yeah, well, they were part of an attack party trying to kill Otley and his guests, and they they were hoping to burn them alive in a in the hall. I understand, and I'm not defending them, but these poor guys are going to have serious trouble with eyeglasses from now on. It's 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 a little harsh. <laughs> well, fortunately, they don't have to worry about that. <laughs> um, but that's the that's the message that Otley wants to send, right? And as the three survivors stumble away from the farm and begin their journey to go find their bosses. Halworth calls after them with, you guessed it, a verse. From the east, the word must have come. A sword reddened in blood, brought to Isafjord, to the arrow shower's lords, that the battle breeders bandied the chatter of spears. Out east, the sons of Valbrand yielded nothing to their foes. And that is the last of Halvorth's verses in this saga. It's not a bad one to go out on. It, it even approaches comprehensibility in several places. Yeah, I guess faint praise is still praise. Uh, but I will say that arrow showers is not easy. Arrow, arrow dang. Arrow showers <laughs> is not easy to say. <laughs> no, no. Uh, yeah, and to be but, clear, that's the last verse. The saga still has some fairly important loose ends to tie up. Oh, very important, yeah. 
Uh, John, incidentally, yeah. I was just reading about Halvor's Saga today in Margaret Clooney's Ross's book on Icelandic uh, poetry mm-hmm. or poetry in the saga. Oh, yeah, you sent me a message about this, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I thought what was interesting is is she, I think she claims in there that this saga, um, the, the, verse, the verses are so, I, I think the manuscript is so messed up <laughs> that... That Finner Jonsson, who helped put together like the editions mm-hmm. uh, of these things, is uh, should be credited just as much as <laughs> as whoever actually wrote the poems, because right. uh, definitely definitely some editing going on. Well, we'll be the, t- we'll be talking about the uh, the the provenance of this manuscript a bit when we do judgments. Yeah, yeah. But uh, okay, um, we finished with Otley and Halvarth mm-hmm. and the action scene. Now let's uh, let's bring the tone down a little bit. Let's go. Let's be a little calmer. Let's go over to the all thing and see what's going on over there. Part fifteen: Skullduggery at Law Rock. So at the beginning of this episode, we saw two different, very large groups of men on their way to the all thing. One led by Stainthor of Eri, uh, Halvar's friend and protector. The other led by Thorar and Throdrickson and Dura of Durafjord. These are not Halvar's friends. No. Uh, I think we should just jump ahead to the All Thing. Are you, uh, are you ready to go to the All Thing, Andy? I, I think so. I've got warm boots. Uh, oh, and I have a thirst for justice. Can I find that there? Very dramatical. Uh, no. <laughs> so... We're, uh, we're along with Stainthor as he makes his way around the place, uh, testing his support for his case defending Halvorth and the gang. He's feeling confident, and even more so once he meets with Guest Odlifsson, the <gasps> seer of the future. Yes, Guest, remember, broke his sister's marriage to Thorbjorn Throdrickson after he saw how Thorbjorn had conducted himself in his dealings with others. So there is no love lost between the Throdricksons and Guest. Absolutely. So much so that when Stainthor suggests publicly that Guest should be the one to arbitrate a settlement over the killings, he doesn't really think there's a chance it'll be accepted. Yeah. Uh, but to everyone's surprise, Thorar and Enduri are fine with it and give the go-ahead. Well, they, uh, they've already sent their crew of assassins to kill everyone involved in the case, so uh-huh. you know, might as well earn points by looking reasonable uh, while trying to find a path to peace. Yeah, I think that's exactly what's going on. Uh, and it doesn't take long for guests to gather all the details of the case. And soon he's ready to give a judgment. And this is a long judgment. Yes. But it's, it's been a while since we've had a really meaty court judgment to talk about. Remember, uh, mm-hmm. Luxdal Saga, famous for its lack of interest in law. Yeah. Uh, so I want to just rattle this off and then we can discuss it. Does that sound good? Oof, are you going to do the whole... Okay. Uh, But for those of you listening, don't worry about remembering all the names and the details. Mm -hmm. This is going to recap the whole saga and all of the violence that we've seen, uh, (laughs) not including what we just covered. Um, We'll review the important stuff at the end. Right. Uh, I'm going to need a sip of my drink to get through this. Hang on. Here goes. All right. I will first take up the killing of Olaf Halvorsen which was spoken of here last summer. For this death, I award three guilds. This is cancelled by the killings of Sturtla Thjordrickson, Thjordrick the Younger, and Jot of Manaberg, who all died innocent of crimes. But Thorbjorn Thjordrickson and his nephews Vark and Scarf all die without any right to compensation, 
due to the injustices and unspeakable acts they committed. The killings of Bran the Strong and Aun Hotgrim's foster father are to be weighed against one another. I do award one Weregild for the follower of Yot of Manaburg. For the killing of Yot the Dueler, I award no compensation. His injustices to Thorbjorn and others are known to all. I also award sole ownership of their joint meadow to Thorbjorn the farmer. It is only fitting that his boys, his children, should have killed such a warrior as Yot. Wow. I mean, that's the whole saga. <laughs> there's, there's, way, there's way too much to unpack, but it is a good review. Yeah, I mean, that's actually only about half the full judgment. Uh, but, you know, Guess is a legalistic mind. He, he likes mm-hmm. to get things right. Uh, the upshot here is that he's finding ways to balance the scales regardless of the relative body count. Halvert's come out of this having managed several kills in the family of his enemies without suffering any permanent damage or much of a financial hardship. Yeah, it's not even as though he's being especially subtle about it. He's just mm-hmm. rattling off names and relative value. <laughs> Remember, mm-hmm. Thorin and Duri are just stalling until they get word from Otterdal about the deaths of Halvarth and his friends. So they're agreeing to whatever said and biding their time. Right, and even though the sympathies of the Assembly and even Guest himself are with Halvarth, there's still the problem of the sheer number of killings. And so Guest is announcing that a sentence of uh, minor outlawry this is sort of the second half that I'm going to summarize. Uh, a sentence of minor outlawry for Halvorth's nephews is going to be enforced. Uh, Hotgrim, mm-hmm. Torvi, Eolf, Aud, and Thorer are all banished with the sentence to last until Thorarin Throdrickson dies. Well, well, that sounds like a real incentive to kill Thorarin, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think the idea there is that Thorarin's pretty old. At this yes. stage, yes, and exactly. uh, the idea is that it probably it's like a minor outlawry. He's right. not going to be not around take that much terribly longer. long. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there's still more. I think doesn't uh, doesn't Halvarth have to move or something like that? Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, yes, yes. He's required to sell his farm and leave the district. A kind mm-hmm. of regional outlawry, in other words, not a not a full exile. Yeah, it's a, it's a very statesmanlike judgment, all things considered. I think. I mean, I I feel like you might be prejudiced in guests' favor. <laughs> He's one of your thingmen, isn't he? Hey, might be. Who keeps track of whose thingman is who and who's <laughs> more brilliant than whatever? It doesn't. Uh-huh. It's it's a masterful piece of legal justice, and uh, uh-huh. you know, look, it's, uh, it's good that men like him are around. Uh-huh. Uh huh. If we're honest, this judgment, like most judgments at the all thing, is as much about trying to figure out the prevailing wins as it is about actual right and wrong in a case. I don't know about that. Uh, the Durenbergers phrase it. Oh, very the well. Durenbergers! Yes, is this the last time I get to do this? The Durenbergers. It is, I think. Yeah, unless uh, <laughs> unless they come up again, who knows? Uh, right. They say the main function of the General Assembly was not to make law or to adjudicate cases, but to make and test coalitions among chieftains. That's true. Uh, so I think in this case, you know, public opinion, the wind is plainly blowing in Stainthor's favor at the moment, and guest judgment reflects public opinion. Uh, yeah, I suppose so. But I got to say, this is a work of literature. It's very clearly a work of literature. Mm -hmm. And there are very clearly good guys and bad guys. Sure. So to to look at this particular story and try to pretend like it's representing some kind of social reality or historical reality, you know, I'm not I'm not wholly comfortable with that. But as is often the case, it may be a commentary on that reality. 
Yeah. It doesn't that, need to that be that a I record think. of past events to speak on them. Well, look at that. We're, 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 we're talking like a couple of book proses versus uh, free <laughs> proses, aren't we? A little bit of Icelandic school and American school here, you there know? There you go. Woo! <laughs> but... <laughs> Uh, in in this case, I do think though public opinion, fictional or or real, would be on the side of Halvarth. Um, but so are common sense and facts of this well, I mean, case. It's always convenient when those line up. Well, yeah, and whatever it is, it it works. Sure, uh, but again, I think it works mainly because Thorar and Enduri aren't paying attention. Right? They're just laughing up their sleeves at all this because they're waiting for the news to break of the slaughter of Halvarth and his friends. As readers, we're able to see the two sides to their pleasure. Right? One of the one of this saga's tricks is that it plays with perception this way, with scenes that are playing out differently for each person depending on what they know or expect. Hotdog hmm. uh, Goodmanson uh, says that the the saga displays certain novelistic characteristics, which also appear in other late sagas. Among them, a conscious play with appearance and reality. Hmm. Yeah, and I don't want to get too deep into uh, these different schools of, of mm-hmm. Icelandic uh, saga criticism, but th- these are these are influences from continental mm-hmm. sources as well. Sure. It's, it's, this is the same kind of thing that's going on in mm-hmm. continental literature um, as is going on in Iceland. Uh, but I'm going to choose to give the Icelanders credit for <laughs> introducing that <laughs> to the continent rather than the other way around, just to be... Just to be contrary. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. So when the time comes to seal the settlement, Thorarin agrees to everything and expresses his complete satisfaction with the outcome. Mm-hmm. But just as this case is settled, three men stumble in shambles into this circle. Mm-hmm. And they are stumbling in shambles because they are smeared in pitch and their heads are shaved. And John... There's something awfully conspicuous about them. Mm-hmm. Their glasses keep falling, <laughs> falling off. Their, no, they're missing their ears. Yeah, that's the kind of thing that'll get your attention, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and so everyone falls silent while the three of them tell their tale of woe. Mm-hmm. Which means every person there at Law Rock can clearly hear them tell Thorar and Enduri what happened when they attempted a hall burning in Otradal. And got massacred by the men they were sent by those two men to kill. Yeah, and Thorarn and Duri are, well, you have to assume they're trying to shut these guys up the whole time. Right. <laughs> and they, but unfortunately, they can't hear very well. Right, exactly. Their ear holes are full of blood. Uh, well, and, and Tar. Um, and Tar, yes. uh, I mean, Thorarn is definitely trying to shut them up. Uh, Duri's probably got other things on his mind, since part of the news they've brought is the death of his son, Thorgrim. Oh, that's true. Yeah, you're right. Uh, and, and before they're even done talking, the crowd's muttering angrily that Thorarin has behaved rather badly mm-hmm. and gotten what he deserved for this double cross. I mean, this is starting to feel like the payoff of a bad 80s movie, right? Watching the, the villains suffer humiliations and indignities left and right. Uh, and Guest is obviously annoyed as well, right? He's been played for a fool. And even though it worked out, he's still not happy about it. Well, I have to say, this seems like the kind of thing a guy known for fortune telling maybe should have some kind of clue about. Maybe he could have looked into I, his uh, look, his bag of tricks and seen it. But far be it for me to defend your thingman. But if he did have a premonition about this, isn't going ahead with the judgment about the nastiest thing he can do to Thorar in any way? <laughs> That's true. Yeah, especially since everyone committed themselves to the settlement 
right before the mutilated survivors showed up. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, let's get credit to guests then. I mean, uh, but we do know, have... To- we, we have to think, you know, that if, if he does know about all this in advance, timing the settlement so that Theron has to agree to it just before these guys burst in is about the cruelest thing you can do to the guy. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, but but yeah, we we have to read his next speech. Uh, uh, but, but if that's true, then we have to read his next speech as disingenuous. Well, let's see. Uh, guest says... It can truly be said that you folks have no equals in nasty behavior and dishonor. (laughs) How could you pretend to settle the dispute and practice such deception? Now, since I have spoken in a way to bring about a settlement here, I will let it stand as it has been arbitrated and agreed upon. As for you, Stainthorpe, you have behaved well and honorably in all this. And know that I will support you in any future lawsuits you may have with anyone. Woo! (laughs) Now, presumably continuing to glare at Thorarin as he says that last bit. You'd assume um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. I I guess we'd have to treat that as theatrical or at least sardonic if he knew about the treachery in advance. If, if he did. Uh, I think it works both ways, but there is something (laughs) kind of pleasant about the idea that he might know. Uh Um. And Stainthor says, Guest, you should have the most to say about all of this. It seems to me that they have had about enough of the worst of it, since they've lost so many men and their honor to boot. (laughs) (laughs) Stainthor knows how to rub it in until it bleeds, doesn't he? He's a pretty cool dude. Uh, Now, remember, (laughs) this is the same guy who told Otley that he's not really a miserly jerk. He just seems that way because of his personality. (laughs) It's true. Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that's the end of the case and of the Theodrickson's involvement in this saga. They're they're done. Well, it's it's the end of most of the Theodrickson's, for that matter. Yeah. Uh, And it's pretty devastating to Thorarin standing in Iceland as well. Oh, yeah. He's been embarrassed in several ways. His brothers have all been killed with almost no punishment. He was caught out trying to cheat on a publicly agreed upon settlement. He lost a large number of men in a doomed revenge plot. And he's been called out for his bad behavior in full view of the public. Mm-hmm. There's a lot, that's a lot of hits to his honor all at once. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's exactly the kind of thing that costs a man his social standing. Mm-hmm. And one of the recurring themes of this saga is the connection between popularity and effectiveness. It's mm. the social connections among the elite that give a chieftain power. The social connections are how a chieftain exerts influence and commands respect. And sure. Thorbjorn abused that, right, didn't respect right. it, and so he had a quick fall. Yeah. No, a chieftain whose reputation is costing him followers isn't much of a chieftain at all. Right. Uh, we've seen that with the deaths of Thorbjorn and Throdrickson, the two chieftains whose deaths are barely treated as worthy of revenge. Mm-hmm. It's, it's one of the smaller messages of this story. I like it, though. Political power is a consequence of the influence derived from popularity. Yes. However, who's a man who sits outside the political system, is rich in friends and relatives willing to pitch in and help him in his time of need, and so he's still very effective. Mm-hmm. And Stainthor, who's a chieftain of impeccable moral character, is influential and popular in part because of his willingness to help those whose causes he thinks are good. And that's regardless of the status of the people involved. Absolutely. In this saga, at least, that kind of integrity gets rewarded. Mm-hmm. Now, the cynic in me would point to that as proof that this is a highly fictional saga, but... Well, 
There may be Doesn't a connection like there, it. yeah. Yeah. And and we now get all the aftermath of the climax. Mm-hmm. Stainthor returns home where he meets with Halvarth and learns all about the battle. And Halvarth makes a point of speaking particularly well of how Otley handled himself. And Otley's reputation skyrockets as a result of this battle. Mm-hmm. The saga tells us, From that time on, Otley was held to be a man of honor everywhere he went. Which completes a real left turn in this narrative. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Somewhere around chapter 16, this saga suddenly stopped being occupied with the story of Halworth and Bjargi's revenge for, for the death of their son, and became the story of a formerly low-status miser, taking his place among the respected warrior aristocracy of the Westfields. And John, I, I'm going to admit something ahead of time here. Mm-hmm. On my list of candidates for Thingman <laughs> is none other than Otley. Is Squat Outley the beady-eyed? <laughs> yes. What a what a <laughs> fine fellow he turned into. He turned out to be something special. I mean, this is it's following sort of a classic three-act structure, this saga. Right? Oh yeah. The the first act was the story of Olaf and the growing jealousy of Thorbjorn Throdrickson, culminating in Olaf's death. Then we get Act Two, the story of Halvarth and Bjargi and their quest for revenge. Mm-hmm. And now we have what amounts to the Thouter of Outley the Short. Yeah, but the, the end of the saga definitely pivots back to the main narrative. After the farewell with Stainthor, Halvarth and his nephews return home to Isafjord. And there, Halvarth and Bjargi are finally reunited. Yes, right. Bjargi has been sitting there, mm-hmm. not really, I guess she must have heard, but she's been left alone for all this time. You have to assume there was a messenger at some point, but yeah. I would I mean, hope you'd so. expect a nod to the, remember the sweetness of their farewell earlier in the mm-hmm. story. Right. You'd expect a nod back to that. But instead, we're just told that she and her brothers are all extremely pleased with their boy's conduct. Yeah. Uh, but there is just the one cloud on the horizon. Outlawry. Yeah, outlawry, yeah. Uh, Hothgrim, Torvi, Eolf, Aud, and Thorer were all sentenced to outlawry in guest judgment. And even though Thorarin was being a sneak, the judgment was still announced, found valid, and agreed to by all involved parties. Mm, I don't like so, that. Yeah. The, the return home is only temporary for everyone except Halvarth and Thorhall. I feel like if I'm Hotgrim, Torvi, Ao, like if I'm these guys and I return home after that big mm-hmm. fight and all the things you've been through and I find out that I'm outlawed, mm-hmm. I might not be terribly happy about that. Well, maybe. Or. But, <laughs> or maybe it's time for a party. A big one. That's, I mean, that's certainly Halvard's attitude, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he throws quite the going away bash for his nephew's squad. Uh, it's a week-long feast, and invitations go out to the households of Stainthor, Atli, and guest Oldleifsson, and and to the households of Bjargi's brothers, Valbrand, Thorbrand, and Ausbrand, who are all still somehow alive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we get the list of gifts that Halvard gives out to everyone, and, you know, we don't need to go into all of it, but Stainthor alone is given 30 sheep, 5 oxen, a shield, a sword, and a gold ring. So, in addition to the reputation that Stainthor mm-hmm. has gained, look at all this wealth. He's doing very well for himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, we're suddenly getting a sense, by the way, of just how wealthy a retired Viking Halvarth is. Yeah. His money hasn't really come into this saga until now, but he's got plenty to give away. Sure. Uh, there is one more gift we should mention, though. Halvarth gives his nephew Hotgrim the sword Gunloya. The sword that Halvarth took from Thorbjorn and used to avenge his son's death. 
Yeah, the one that never misses its mark. Yeah, That's all right. the all the nephews get gifts and weapons, but we've seen all through the saga that Hotgrim is being marked out as special. He's the yes. favorite. Yes. Now, this is the kind of moment that can mark a saga kernel, right? A link to another story. Uh, but Hotgrim doesn't have a surviving story of his own, so either this is a reference to a story that hasn't survived to us, or it's an imitation of the kind of world building that earlier sagas do. Mm. Yeah, I mean, both are really intriguing options, but Mm -hmm. at least he has a nice cool sword to bring with him when he (laughs) goes into exile. Yeah, it's actually uh, sort of a party boat out of town, right? Yeah. Uh, All five cousins are going to travel together, and they sail to Norway to spend time in the court of Earl Hauken. Oh, really? Yeah, and which Earl Hauken? Well, at this point, it's kind of hard to work out when this saga thinks it's happening. But it's clear from context that we're dealing with Earl Hauken Sigurdsson, uh, which places the story in the 990s, uh, which would sit well with references to Christianity as an up-and-coming religion. Uh, yeah, and speaking of which, don't think I haven't forgotten throughout the reading of the whole rest of the saga about uh, Halvorth swimming and mm-hmm. thinking to himself suddenly <laughs> about Christianity. Yes. Um, <laughs> but as we'll see... Olaf Tryggvason is king after this, Mm -hmm. so that's probably about right. Um, Although you do sometimes see dating that places this saga well after that, uh, into the 11th century. So the dates are hard to to fix. Right, which which assumes that then that the author is unaware of the exact regnal dates of Hauken and Olaf, which is entirely possible, given how late this saga is. Um, Well, no matter which Hauken it is, they're not with him all that long because they then get themselves a ship. They organize and form a raiding party. Uh, the nephews f- spend a few years raiding and making names for themselves. Eventually, they get word of Thorarin's death from old age in Iceland, and they're free to return. As the saga says, mm-hmm. there are many stories of them here in this land and in other places far and wide. Which is sure to uh, mean that we don't that that's not true these are fictional people <laughs> and there's there's nothing uh-huh. out there about them uh yeah but you know take the text word for sure. it see what happens sure. now meanwhile back in iceland halvarth bjargi and thorhatl move their farm to oxidal where they live for several years now eventually they go on a pilgrimage of sorts to meet olaf Tryggvason himself mm-hmm. And learn about this newfangled Christianity thing that everyone's talking about. Right. And that's the payoff to something that you just mentioned earlier, right? A very brief moment earlier in this story. Remember when Halvorth yeah. was confronting Thorbjorn Thjodriksen on that island? Yes. It, it's the weirdest yes. and most forced insert <laughs> in the whole saga. That's why I was like, you know, reading the whole rest of the saga thinking about it. Mm-hmm. He gets caught off guard by Thorbjorn, who's got a big rock and is about to bash his head in with it. And in that moment, Halvarth makes an impromptu sort of promise that he'll convert as soon as he kills Thorbjorn. And someone can actually tell him why this new faith is better than the pagan one that he knows. Right. Suggesting he needs an interlocutor, someone to to explain things yes. to him. Uh, and right after he makes that promise, uh, Thorbjorn slips on the rock falls and the the stone he's holding lands on his own chest yeah. and crushes his chest. Yeah, no it's <laughs> and it seems as if Olaf is the silver-tongued devil who can explain the finer points of comparative theology to Halvorth. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh so uh Halvorth and Bjarge spend the winter in Norway and while they're there, uh they convert 
and then Bjargi dies of old age. Oh, no. Uh, I know. Uh, Halvorth and Thorhalt uh, bury her there, uh, and then eventually return to Iceland. But it's not long before Halvorth, too, is on his deathbed. Yeah. Uh, and all this is covered in essentially a very short paragraph. But yeah. it's only at the end here that we finally learn about Thorhalt's relationship to Halvorth. Mm-hmm. You see, John, he's also a nephew. Aha! But apparently on Halvorth's side of the family. Yeah, no, we we teased this a couple episodes back. Uh, we said that Thorhalt's chances of inheriting from Halvorth were pretty slim with all these nephews running around. Uh, but in yeah. fact, he's sort of a secret nephew. Uh, mm, because this saga nephews. This saga's been so concerned with nephews on the on on Bjarge's side of the family that they, it's ignored Thorhalt's family until now. Uh, well, I mean, generally speaking, it's not that interested in genealogies. That's that's generally true. Although, again, Bjarke's got lots of very old brothers around with kids. Uh, but otherwise, yeah. yes. Uh, and it turns out now that Thorhat is in a position to inherit. Halvorth now tells mm. him, I, I now have the sickness that will cause my death. I want you to have my wealth. Enjoy it, for you have served me well and given me the very best support. Move your own farm to the upper part of the dale. Build a good church there, and I want to be buried there when it is complete. And soon after that, Halvorth dies peacefully in his sleep. It's a rare example of a quiet, peaceful death in the sagas that doesn't undercut the character in any way. Yeah, no, it actually fits entirely in with who he is and what he's been the entire time. Right. This is a yeah. man who'd retired and who was looking forward to a quiet life and a quiet death. And that was interrupted by the death of his son. But he's finally yeah. got essentially what he'd set himself up for. Yeah. Um, Peace. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. And that's the story. That's the end of Howard's saga. Yeah. John, might be early to ask, but how are we feeling about this? I'm not like tipping my hand this early, but I will say that my impressions are more positive than I remember them being the first time I read this. Uh, this is a saga that rewards thinking about, and that's definitely not something I'd thought of it before now. <laughs> uh, how about you? Uh, well, I don't think it would be right to tip my hand either, uh-huh. but here's my hand. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time I've read this one, um, and uh, I'll expand on my thoughts when we get to the judgments final rating section, right. but uh, I'm very, very pleased mm-hmm. with this saga. Mm-hmm. Uh, from top to bottom, I think it's pretty well done. Um, but yeah, yeah, good, good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, John, this uh, this episode went uh, a little quicker than most, just because we, you know, this this section there wasn't much saga left. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, well, it's six chapters. We often take two, three hours on four That's chapters. True. That's so, true. You know, uh, but we do have time for a listener runesack question. Are you up for it? <laughs> Yeah, let's have it. So I, I've got a question here that I've been saving for a while uh, so that okay. we can address it after finishing Halvarth Saga. Um, it has to do <laughs> with uh, our interpretation uh, or an interpretation of Halvarth Saga. Um, uh-huh. So, yeah. Are you ready for that? I mean, again, I don't want to tip my hand too early about any kind of judgments, but sure. So uh, on the service formerly known as Twitter, at uh, Lufzig mm-hmm. wonders... If Halvor's saga can be read as an allegory for Iceland's relationship with the Norwegian crown, uh, with maybe Thorbjorn mm. acting as the hostile foreign king. Really? Yeah. Which is inter- it's interesting. interesting. And, and you can see why 
someone might think that this is a later saga and so but all, right. i mean all the sagas are written during a time when they're ruled by the right. norwegian kings and there is often a suspicion of that royal authority right so how do you how do you see it do you do you think so my immediate response is that i'm i'm skeptical only because i think it's an interesting idea i'm skeptical only because i think this author or this saga i should say author is always a complicated term for sagas oh yeah um but this saga is very aware of conventions of the genre and is playing at a literary level. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not as certain about its historical awareness. Mm. Uh, and, and as we were just talking about, uh, the the saga's apparent confusion as to which Earl Hauken is being dealt with here sure. and when the saga is even taking place suggests a you know a somewhat casual relationship with the with the Icelandic past. And that seems to me to fit ill with um, a sort of a, a deep allegory yeah. based on but a relationship I'll, I'll flip that. Iceland's past and present. I'll flip that on you the way that you did to me yeah. just a moment ago. Um, could you argue that it is a commentary on kingship or authority in a way that is broadly applicable to the situation that Icelanders find themselves in. I have my own theories. I'm going to wait until you're done, and then I'll share what I'm thinking. So that seems more tenable to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still not certain that I'm going to like get on board, but I do think that's a more tenable concept. Uh, right. I mean, if that's what the what the question is, then then. Then I would say, you know, that's certainly a reasonable way of reading it. Yeah. Uh, again, I, I, my feeling is that this is a more of a work of art than a work of commentary, mm-hmm. uh, and that it's it's more aware of itself as a kind of commentary on genre than it is as a uh, piece of political propaganda or a piece of political analysis. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. See, I, I, I don't agree wholly with you, but I agree that it's not mm-hmm. a political work. I don't see this mm-hmm. very much as a uh, certainly as a commentary on Norwegian authority or kingship in general. Mm-hmm. Something like Ale Saga uses kings specifically to comment on yes. the question of whether Icelanders should trust royal authority and the right. warning very much in the line of of Snorri, the infamous Snorri Sturluson, um, is be careful trusting Norwegian royal authority. <laughs> but Snorri is writing that, the the Heimskringla, and if he wrote Ale Saga, he's writing all of that before Iceland's kind of submission to mm-hmm. Norwegian authority. I think it's worth noting that Iceland did not, once it submitted to Norwegian authority, Norwegian kings, in uh, the 1260s, it didn't actually suffer from oppressive rule by Norwegian kings. In fact, they retained right. a degree of autonomy and they managed to prosper during that time until the Little Ice Age and then the plague right. and, and stuff like right. that. So I don't know that Icelanders have a discomfort in the later period with Norwegian authority that we want to often read into that. I would I would. I would disagree with that only because um, I think the the degree to which the Icelandic self-definition in the sagas in the 13th, 15th centuries yeah. is predicated on the idea of an independent island. I think that's true. Uh, that the 
the yoke of a foreign king rankles, even if it's very light. See uh, that there's a sense there's a, there's a sense of nostalgia for a free Icelandic past. That uh, I think, that I think is true. Can be felt throughout the saga genre, regardless of when they're written. Almost. Right. Uh, until you get to the very, very late stuff, the stuff being written, you know, at the end of the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance, um, there's there's a very clear nostalgia for a time when Iceland was free. I um, I agree, but I think and, that a lot of those texts that you're talking about, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I feel like they might predate that submission to royal authority a little bit. Not all of them. Not all of them, but 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 I think. I think what is going on in this particular case with Halvarth Saga, so there's obviously any kind of lengthy debate we could have or books we could write about Icelandic sagas and kingship. Mm -hmm. But if we're talking about Halvarth Saga, it isn't really about royal authority. Kings don't come up other than as the deliverers of this new faith with Olaf Tryggvason. Oh, no, I absolutely agree that this saga, again, we both agree that this saga is not directly concerned with Norwegian rule. But what I I think we just differ, we just differ about kind of the broader question of whether sagas are yeah which, rankling at the idea of Norwegian rule. Well, I think some of them most assuredly are, and we've talked about that on the on, on the podcast. Mm-hmm. But uh, for for Halvard saga, I think it fits more nicely into a late twelfth, early thirteenth century moment when Storgodar are consolidating yes. power exactly. and running yes, roughshod over this. the established laws and kind of ethical mm-hmm. norms and customs of Iceland. Something that actually triggered the submission to Norwegian authority, Norwegian royalty. Right. Right. Um, right. So this saga, to me, is more about chieftains and what mm-hmm. makes a good chieftain. And Stainthor right. is a callback to that that ideal. Whether we want to say he's a golden age kind of uh, chieftain or not doesn't really matter for, for my argument here. What he is mm-hmm. is a, a representative both him and guest of what it is expected of a chieftain and what can come from doing it right. Whereas Thorbjorn represents the, the excess of, right. of abuse well, of power. I agree. And I said at one point when we were doing the summary, I think a couple episodes ago, that for me, the, the Theodricsons are a kind of prefiguring of the Storgothar, mm-hmm. right? It's a family that's consolidated so much power that three of the five brothers are chieftains all in the same region of Iceland. Yeah. Uh, and then they've got this friend Dura, who's also a chieftain. That they they represent a, a sort of massive power base in a sparsely populated part of the island. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me, that's yeah, it's it's much more about that. Although I do think the 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 listener's question is valid because it is clearly preoccupied with the idea of misused power, definitely, and the way that that can be sort of turned on. The the everyday person, mm-hmm. right? The 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 Joe Olaf of uh, the countryside, the Joe Olafson, right? Whether whether that whether that misused authority, whether that um, that authoritative kind of uh, abuse comes from within Iceland or without, yeah. uh, the saga is interested in it. Absolutely, I think I agree that it's more likely to be concerned with the abuses of power that exist within the Icelandic mm-hmm. system. Than those that can be imposed on it from outside. Yeah, yeah, and and again, that can be 
of a particular moment, or it can be more broadly, more generally just about power and how one uses mm-hmm. it, which mm-hmm. falls in line very nicely with kind of some of the Christian messaging that's going to be going on in Iceland at the time right. that these sagas are are being written. I think one of the things that uh, someone like Theodore M. Anderson uh, does with a saga like this, because he's written about this one a couple times, um, but he speaks about this saga as a story with an ethical lesson to be taught that praises things like generosity and forbearance and mm-hmm. condemns excessive, well, ex- it, it condemns excess. And I think mm-hmm. one of the things that struck me as I was reading it was, and I wish there were more brothers of the Theodricsons because it almost started to feel like a moral. <laughs> Five wasn't enough. No, I need seven. What I need, if I want this to be oh. a true kind of medieval, like. One to represent each of the deadly sins. Exactly. That's what, that's what, if yeah. this was a truly Christian tale, each of the brothers mm-hmm. would represent a certain kind of sin. But you can kind of see right. the elements of, of sin and sinfulness in each of the, uh, the Theodricsons. Yeah. Um, if you're looking at lust. Except for poor Sturtla. Poor Sturtla, we, we hardly seems knew to have you. done nothing wrong except to be in the wrong place at the wrong yeah, time. That's right, but we do have lust and greed and 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 mm-hmm. pride and 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 all you know. I don't remember all of them, but there's lots of things. <laughs> you don't remember all of them that you practice. I don't, I don't remember day. the big fat uh, gluttonous uh, Theodrickson, but I'm sure oh, he's out wow. there somewhere. That's... Yeah, and then there's old uh, sloth Theodrickson, who's too fat and lazy to even be worth killing. He, I mean, scarf. Wasn't that who refused to get up and help his own brother in a fight? Oh yeah, that's right. Scarf did. Yeah, he was like, ah, whatever. Yeah, but he did. Is there is there uh, a, a sin for being just a whiny little cretin like that? <laughs> I mean, he's very petty and jealous. So mm-hmm. you know, envy. Sure, let's go with that. Envy. You know, yeah, yeah. Vak represents that. envy of for being the salacious crumb of Vikings. Yeah, the salacious crumb. Anyway, so uh, hopefully we have answered uh, Luftzig's question. I, we haven't, but we've in- hopefully it was an interesting conversation. What anyway. we've what we've done is opened up a discussion, and uh, there you go, John. You know, discussion's good. It doesn't have to have That's a right. conclusion. That's right. That's. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually how my dissertation ended. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's where I'm ending. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Uh, that's going to do it for this time. Mm-hmm. We'll be back very soon with the Judgments episode for this saga. But in the meantime, let us know what you think. Yeah. You've listened to us blather on about these characters for a while now. So tell us whether you think Stainthor is really such a great guy. Or whether you have some questions about the kind of heroes who would chop off their captured enemies' ears. Who would you take for thing? I mean, I, hmm? I, I, I hope most people would have a problem with that. Actually, nah, I mean, you know, some people uh, deserve it. Yeah. So we're wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, be on notice, Andy's students. Uh, so where would uh, people go to tell us what's going on in their hardworking noggins? Well, we are on Facebook and Instagram as Saga Thing Podcast. We have an account, at least for now, on the depressing ghost town formerly known as Twitter or X. At Sagathing Pod. You can email us at sagathingpodcast at gmail.com with questions and comments. Right. And uh, best of all, you can find us on our unofficial official Discord channel, where Andy turns up regularly, where I wander in when I can remember how to get on the internet, and where we're talking about everything from hidden Amanapuya in Middle English words to propaganda and historical accounts to smearing the good name of Arnkel the Gothi in modern scholarship. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> 
It's <laughs> it's the best place to get into the community of excellent, interesting, and talented people who have the good taste to be listeners of this podcast. And I will put a uh, I'll put a link in the show notes uh, to the Discord once again, just in case you aren't there. Excellent. Yet. And if uh, if none of those methods works, uh, send Andy some obscure piece of Cleveland's Brown sports memorabilia, and he'll read anything you want on the podcast. Ooh. Seriously, anything at all. He's not lying there. All right. <laughs> That's it for now. We will be back soon with judgments. But until then, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. We did it. Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And this is our fourth and final episode, summarizing the saga of... No barking. The saga of no barking. The saga of leave me alone, don't sniff me, and don't bump my arm. (laughs) It's a post-classical saga. Yeah, I've... (laughs) 